2: underwritten by golden rule insurance company they offer budget-friendly flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment the plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals so for whatever tomorrow brings united healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you learn more at uh1.com
3: let's be honest it's been hard in 2020 to keep an eye on everything that matters There's been coronavirus and the utter chaos of Westminster's handling of a health and economic catastrophe. Then there's been Brexit, more chaos, as Britain continues on its journey to the edge of a cliff. And of course, then there's been the battle to overthrow Donald Trump, sucking the oxygen and the energy out of absolutely everything. So I think it's fair to say that overwhelmed and confused have been the signature moods of 2020. But of course, as you might have guessed, there's something else that we should be paying attention to. This wouldn't be the slow newscast, after all, if we just stuck to the headlines. It just might be that beyond the chaos, something else, something possibly even more historic, has been bubbling away. A story centuries in the making that is building an unstoppable momentum. I'm Basha Cummings, and in this week's podcast, we're going north of the wall, and we're asking... Are we witnessing the beginning of the breakup of the United Kingdom? Because it's been six years since Scotland said no in a referendum on independence, but so much has changed since then. There's been coronavirus, Brexit, the arrival of Boris Johnson, and the rise of Nicola Sturgeon. So we've been on the road with journalist Danny Garavelli and producer Jill Davis, and we're asking this. After more than 400 years tied to England, Is Scotland finally, actually, on an unstoppable march to independence? Slow News is a podcast made by us here at Tortoise. We're a news publisher, in an app, online, in our daily SenseMaker email and, as you already know, in podcasts. What's different about us is that we investigate what's driving the news, and we'd love you to join us. By becoming a member of our newsroom, you'll get access to our journalism, and you can join our open news meetings and help decide what matters in the world, and how we should report it. To get access to all of Tortoise, all you have to do is download the Tortoise app, now available in the iOS or Google Play store, and take a free trial. Hi Danny. Hi Basha. So you've just got back, I believe, from being out and about speaking to people about what's going on in Scottish politics. Am I right?
4: Um, yes, and it's been it's been such a joy to be out and about
3: rather than on Zoom calls speaking to actual people about Scottish politics. I can imagine. So the clip that we heard was from a march in Edinburgh a year ago. So why are we starting there?
4: So that was an all under one banner march. Um, they say there were two hundred thousand people there, and it was you know it was like a sea of saltires. And these marches are massively popular with the grassroots. Um, they give them an opportunity to express their impatience for independence, but they're sometimes mm. frowned upon by the mainstream, who see all that flag waving as potentially off putting to the no voters that they want to uh, persuade to vote yes in future.
3: Okay, so. Take us back to 2014, because the country was given a chance to vote for its freedom at that moment. And as I remember it, it comprehensively rejected it, didn't it? Yes, Scotland voted 45%
4: for yes, but 55% for no. And that was largely because of concerns around things like currency, the economy, pensions and the fate of the Fastlane nuclear base. But a lot has changed since then, right? Yes, an awful lot. I mean, well, there's Brexit for a start. And, um, you know, while the UK voted to leave the EU, Scotland voted very strongly to remain, 62%. Yeah. And that was the strongest yeah. vote in the country. And um, I think it really reinforced a sense of democratic deficit. You know, here we are again being pushed around by Westminster. Here we are being pulled out of the EU against our will. So, Danny, the
3: the Scottish... Referendum was in 2014. Since then, we've had Brexit. Has that bolstered the Scottish National Party's fortunes, do you think?
4: Well, it didn't do so immediately. Um, you know, I think because there was so much upheaval around Brexit. Uh, Voters felt that they couldn't face any more upheaval, and that's how they saw a second independence referendum. So, at the point where you were coming to the 2017 general election, the uh, Labour and the Tories exploited that sense. And in fact, um, a third of SNP MPs lost their seats at that point.
3: That march we heard came at a watershed moment. It was the start of the 2019 general election campaign, the election which obviously we saw Boris Johnson confirmed as prime minister and a huge Tory majority, which is obviously something that Scotland definitely didn't vote for.
4: No, they didn't. And obviously that increased people's irritation and their sense that uh,
3: they were not being listened to again. Yeah. So it's obvious that Johnson was never likely to play very well in Scotland but obviously no one could have foreseen coronavirus. So what impact has that had on Scottish politics?
4: Yes, yeah, so the tone and messaging around the pandemic have been very different north and south of the border. And this has played to Nicola Sturgeon's advantage. I mean, our approval ratings have soared. And a recent poll put support for independence at 58%. I mean, that's a figure that feels seismic, even to seasoned commentators. And now Johnson has called devolution a disaster. And Tony Blair's biggest mistake... I
3: mean, sometimes it feels as if he's handing it to the SNP on a plate. (laughs) So, okay, so what happens next? Because you've got a Scottish Parliament election next year, right? Yes, and all eyes are now on that, um, the Holyrood elections, which are in May. So, is there anything that can halt the Scottish National Party's upwards trajectory and the journey to independence? And how did we get to the point where the severing of our 400 year old union looks almost inevitable? to understand what's happening in Scotland now, we need to rewind.
5: This is where Edward I camped.
3: Quite a long way, in fact.
4: That's Bruce Jamieson. He's a local historian and former history teacher in Linlithgow. That's a town between Edinburgh and Glasgow. It's steeped in history, from the days of William Wallace and Scotland's wars of independence with England, right up to the present day, because it's where Alex Salmond, former leader of the SNP, was born. I met Bruce in a famous historical landmark where another figure linked with Scottish identity was born, Mary, Queen of Scots.
5: Well, we're standing here in the shadow of Linlithgow Palace, not the one that was here during the Wars of Independence. It was captured by a group of locals under a gentleman called Binney uh, and his supporters hid in the woods behind us and his cart went into the entrance and they could not drop the portcullis because the cart was full of straw. He cut the horses loose, his men rushed in and murdered the whole English garrison. So, yes, there is a deep, long-time connection with Wars of Independence here.
4: I think you were saying earlier that there were actual statues, you think, in the niches above, which are no longer there, dedicated to some of the heroes of independence.
5: They are indeed. Well, Edinburgh Castle has two statues, and we're pretty certain that the empty niches up above us here held William Wallace and Robert the Bruce in them. Uh, And of course, they are two great, inspiring characters. Robert Burns, of course, said that reading the tales of Wallace filled them with the blood of Scottish freedom that he never, ever forgot again in his life. So I think these two gentlemen have inspired many Scots over the ages. And Scots have long memories. You know, we do remember the invasion of the English, the suppression of the English.
4: So you couldn't really grow up here without having that sense of nationhood and an awareness of our, of our past, I guess.
5: I noticed it the first time I came to teach here. I taught people like Alex Salmond, Kenny McCaskill, um, our present Member of Parliament, Martin Day, all pupils of mine. I I claim no credit for instilling the independent spirit in them, but they were very uh, involved in it. I remember giving a talk here to the SNP group on local history, and this young man stood up at the end and gave a brilliant, eloquent vote of thanks. Alex Salmond, very clever man.
3: So Salmon was a critical and charismatic figure, but Danny, another political figure was emerging against a very different backdrop, right?
4: Absolutely. Um,
3: There's a great story that's often told how in the
4: 1987 election, a 16-year-old girl knocked on the door of the local SNP candidate in her home village of Dreghorn, and um, that teenager was Nicola Sturgeon. a typical wee mining village, isn't it? Former mining village. We went to Dreghorn on a drich day, that means miserable, to see where she grew up. With your old family butcher and some miners' cottages and two churches. I see her, um, Nicola Sturgeon's former primary school at some point was turned into a brewery. During a break in the rain, we met Marie Burns, the SNP councillor and leader of the opposition on North Ayrshire Council. She campaigned alongside Sturgeon in the late 80s and has kept in touch with her ever since. I asked Marie what the area was like back then. In the 1980s, we had the advent of Margaret Thatcher.
2: Um, lots of redundancies, job losses, people moving into benefits. So this area, like every, everywhere else in the west of Scotland and further afield, suffered during the 1980s families suffered, there was a lot
4: of poverty. That would be the kind of background that would have been influencing your politics but also the politics of Nicola Sturgeon I guess.
2: Nicola was fortunate in that her mum and dad uh, managed to keep their heads above water and keep working but she went to Greenwood Academy which is just down the road and lots of uh, young people there her friends at school were really struggling with poverty so I think that she picked that up like the rest of us, and 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 you know what what could she do about that? And I think that's what got her involved in politics. She was doing modern studies, and obviously was very affected by everything around her, and, and you could see that when when she first came to to ask to join the SNP.
4: So, do you think because the SNP were kind of more of a fringe movement at the time. And did you think there was a kind of outsider sense and that built a solidarity amongst you all? I think at that time we were a much smaller party. Um, so everybody
2: knew everybody else. And we all felt that we were part of a movement, not just a political party, but part of a movement. And I think when you think of the task that you're trying to achieve, which is basically to to break the British state, that is a huge thing to try and achieve, and, and, and I think we all recognised that, um, and there was a kind of camaraderie in, in that, uh, the, the enormous task that we had in front of us. And
4: So what was uh, Nicola Sturgeon like back then? Because she was very young when she first joined, wasn't she? I mean, when you met her, was it obvious she was going to go far? Did she have strengths that you could have picked out at an early, at an early age? I think probably uh, Nicola at that point
2: might have been a bit of an enigma to some people because she was very shy, um, socially very shy. She was a teenager of the 80s, and I've kind of slagged her off for this at times, you know, with the black coat and the Doc Martens and the piercing stare. (laughs) But she was socially very shy. But her convictions were deep-rooted, as I said, maybe because of that. Because she was so shy, she spent a lot of time reading books Um, I I know she talks about that and she does that now, she did then as well I mean obviously we were very impressed at somebody at 16 with the level of knowledge that she had and her determination because sometimes when people come into politics especially at that age they don't know what they're coming into and after a few weeks or months they've kind of had enough uh, and they're off and those were very difficult times But, but Nicola threw herself into it and while, you know, it would be wrong to say that, you know, looking back, we thought she would ever be, you know, the First Minister or anything, because obviously we had no Scottish Parliament then. So none of us, uh, including Nicola, had any particular personal ambitions at that time. But we knew at that time that, that you know, if she, if she lasted the pace, she would be a great asset to the movement, um, because we could see even then the, the strength of character and the determination that she had. I
3: obviously love the idea of Nicola Sturgeon in her Dr Martens. So Sturgeon was clearly destined for great things, Danny, would you say?
4: Oh, absolutely. Um, And by uh, 2014, she and Salmond had formed a team. He was leader of the SNP and
1: First Minister, and she was his deputy. I think of myself as Scottish, as British, as European.
4: At the same time, Sally Patel was defending the status quo. She runs Lynn um, Lithgow's award-winning independent bookshop Far From the, the Madding Crowd and she's the local Liberal Democrat candidate in next year's Holyrood uh, Elections. British she campaigned well with Better Together
1: in 2014 on the side of no well to independence. As well as I feel like we can absolutely have more than one identity. I don't I don't feel that that's an issue and my unionism, I think, is, is born of that feeling that I am British as well as Scottish and I am proud to be British as well as proud to feel scottish and i'm super proud to be european you know i'm that's just something that i don't know if that was a factor of of my upbringing but it's just how i identify and i'm not i'm not ashamed of that in any way um and sure the economics is is hugely important and i i, I think you're going to ask me you know what are the cases against independence? And I would say that, you know, the economic factor at the moment with everything we're having to deal with is absolutely the number one factor because we've, we've had so much chaos over the past few years. I can't bear to think about it in the next few years. Um, but yeah, I I feel like my unionism is just a part of me.
5: And it's my duty to be clear about the likely consequences of a yes vote. Independence would not be a trial separation, it would be a painful divorce. And as Prime Minister, I have to tell you what that would mean. It would mean we no longer share the same currency. It would mean the armed forces we've built up together over centuries being split up forever. In my opinion, and it is just my opinion, then this is a a a once-in-a-generation opportunity for Scotland. uh, You're talking there about 18 or 20 years gap or so forth. So you can can you pledge that Alex Salmond will not bring back another referendum if you don't win this one? Well, that's my view. My view, this is a a a once-in-a-generation, perhaps even a a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Scotland. The BBC's forecast now is that Scotland has voted no to independence, that the people of Scotland have rejected independence.
3: Alex Simon famously said that that was it for a generation. So how quickly did it become clear that this was not, in fact, it? and that it wouldn't settle the question?
4: Oh, almost immediately. I mean, tens of thousands of people had become energised during the referendum campaign, and they were not going to be prepared to slink away and lick their wounds. So Salmon resigned, Nicola Sturgeon took over. She was immensely popular almost immediately. Membership rose, and before long, Sturgeon was packing out Rockstar gigs at stadiums across the country. <laughs>
2: the tectonic plates of Scottish politics have clearly shifted. What we're seeing, I think, is a historic shift in Scottish political opinion. Labour's been losing the trust of people in Scotland now over a, a period of years. When Nicola became leader, as I said, we'd already achieved 45% uh, in the referendum, but we were not going to have another referendum anytime soon. So the kind of brashness and confidence of Alex Salmond's leadership was maybe not what was needed at that moment in time. I think the conviction from Nicola, I think the desire to show what a Scottish government could achieve in terms of things like fighting inequality, I think the agenda changed then. It was less about you know having a referendum coming up and trying to persuade people of independence. It was more about you know, let's work together, you know, there are huge challenges out there that need to be faced.
5: We can now say the decision taken in 1975 by this country to join the common market has been reversed by this referendum uh, to leave the EU. This, of course, was not true in Scotland. 62%
4: of the population voted to stay in the EU. If the Tory government insists
2: on taking Scotland down a path that hurts our economy, costs jobs, lowers our living standards and damages our reputation as an open, welcoming, diverse country, then be in no doubt, Scotland must have the ability to choose a better future and I will make sure that Scotland gets that chance. It will not be because the 2014 result hasn't been respected. It will be because the promises made to Scotland in 2014
3: have been broken. You mentioned the impact of Brexit earlier. Did this notion of broken promises immediately push everyone towards independence, do you think?
4: Uh, No, there were people like Sally Patel, um,
1: whose support for the union was actually strengthened by Brexit. I don't believe that we should be putting up more barriers. We need to break them down. We need to be more inclusive. I don't want more division. I don't want more chaos. I want us to be able to work together. And to me independence is just a road to, you know, decades
0: of chaos,
6: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Uncertainty, economic ruin. It's just, it's not worth it. It's, It's just not worth it. It's not the right thing to do. Definitely not for now anyway. But others gradually began to see it as proof that the UK was broken
4: that England and Scotland had grown apart demographically, culturally and politically, that Scotland's opinions would always be dismissed and that the only way forward was self-determination. Here's Rebecca Menzies. She's from Commonweal, a pro-independence think
7: tank. We are being taken out of the EU against our will. It's very blatantly obvious that we're treated differently and that our concerns aren't heard. I think independence for a lot of people is the only way they can see Scotland changing. Did you feel a change of
4: opinion around you? And was that largely because people felt very pro-European?
7: I think i definitely seen a change, especially um, I have a friend who voted no. um, For the same reasons I voted yes, they wanted to see change, but they wanted that within the UK. But when Brexit happened, they were like, I would actually vote. For independence now, I don't know if it's necessarily pro-European. Although I thought, I think a lot of Scots are, um, but I think it's also because it was the kind of first time a lot of people seen Westminster just disregarding their vote.
3: And then last year, Boris Johnson arrived as Prime Minister. Was was that the final straw?
4: Well, certainly his ego and his willingness to see the country exit without a deal um, infuriated people. But it was actually yeah. his handling of the pandemic that caused Nicola Sturgeon's approval ratings to soar and bolstered support for independence, I think. It's amazing the number of people who've said,
2: you know, I wasn't a big fan of Nicola Sturgeon, but the way she's handled this pandemic has been amazing. And, and, and I think it's about relatability. You know, we were talking earlier about Nicola growing into herself. Nicola's vet, what, with Nicola, what you see is what you get. You know, there are no sides to Nicola. And over the years, people have said to me, you know, one thing I like about Nicola Sturgeon is, unlike other politicians, she answers a question, or she at least tries to answer it, you know, and doesn't duck questions when she's asked. And I think the fact that Nicola has been willing to do those daily briefings, to put herself out there, to answer whatever questions she's been asked. I watched Boris Johnson... um, is it yesterday he did the press conference, even the way that he speaks doesn't inspire you with confidence. He doesn't sound as if he believes what people are telling him, you know and 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 I think Nicola, Nicola's always had an eye for detail and she's got an incredible memory um, and she likes to know and understand a lot. And I think that's been very clear. She, when she's giving scientific information, you can tell that she's spent a bit of time trying to understand it herself before she tries to explain it to other people. So I think there's a confidence there in Nicola that people just don't have in Boris Johnson. And even
1: Sally is impressed. The pandemic has brought a lot of things sharply into focus for a lot of people. I think probably one of those things is that the people in power in Westminster are maybe not the people we deserve. (laughs) They're certainly not the people that we want. And I don't think they've handled the pandemic very well. Whereas on the other hand, there's Nicola Sturgeon. She has been there, give her her due. She's been there every single day. Giving her her press conference, she is an extremely effective communicator. It might not be being backed up with uh, what is happening in real life, but she she sounds good on a podium, and uh, Boris Johnson does not. <laughs> so I think that's probably helped her cause um, enormously. Uh, yeah. So I mean, I, I don't I don't think she's handled the the pandemic particularly better. Than the government at Westminster but I think she sounds like she has
4: and the praise kept on coming on the streets of Linlithgow.
5: if you're listening to the questions that go to Nicola Sturgeon she answers almost every question and if she can't go into the details we will pass it over you listen to Boris Johnson and the, the UK government they can't answer questions
4: that's my point of view
6: Well certainly there has been a rise in the interest of independence and I think it is due to Westminster's mishandling of the devolved parliaments, it certainly encouraged it. Um, I had no thoughts about independence but certainly I'm swithering now about about it.
4: So the first time round you voted no, is it fair to say? I did
6: vote no first time round, I did vote no but I'll certainly now be reconsidering my,
4: my thoughts. And what about your perceptions of Nicola Sturgeon? Have they changed over the last six months? Oh, I think she's still a nippy sweetie,
6: but um, certainly she's held her own in a very difficult time against a swimming tide, you know? So um, let's just see how she gets on here. But I know that, you know, people are accusing her of being high-handed and demanding that everybody just listens
3: to her, but I think she's got a lot of credence. Certainly. Okay. <laughs> and now is the moment where I sound like the most English person on earth, um, but I think I'm going to need a bit of translation. Swithering? Nippy, sweetie? What do they mean?
4: Okay, swithering kind of means you're on the verge of making a different decision. You're back and forth, but you're... Maybe veering towards okay. in this case independence. And nippy sweetie is an expression that's quite has been quite widely used about Nicola Sturgeon and it kind of means a a woman who has a little sharp edge about them. And mm-hmm. it's widely considered as sort of sexist and certainly Nicola Sturgeon herself absolutely hates it. Danny,
3: what about younger voters in all of this?
4: Yes, I think there's also been a shift in opinion among younger voters. And remember, the minimum voting age in Scotland for Holyrood elections and also for any future independence referendum is 16. There's a whole wave of, of, of young people who didn't get a chance to vote in 2014 and who want to have their say now. So we went to the park. It's 2020. That's what you do. And spoke to Harry, Charlotte and Lara who will vote for the first time in May's
3: Holyrood elections. We never get a government that we actually vote for in Scotland here. We didn't vote for Brexit and we got Brexit. I think we we're very angry about that. And then furthermore, the way Boris Johnson dealt with the coronavirus crisis, I think that shocked a lot of people into realising how useless he is at Prime Minister. Yeah, I think with the current cabinet right now, I'm I'm pro-independence. Um, just because I agree with Charlotte, like, our our government right now, I, I don't believe, is doing the best that they could possibly be doing. Um, I think they're a bit incompetent right now.
2: Yeah, I can agree with most of the stuff that Charlotte and Lara are saying. I think the way that Nicola Sturgeon's, how like, much better she's handled the whole coronavirus crisis compared to Boris Johnson just shows that it's obviously a lot better if we have independence because we can obviously govern ourselves better.
3: So where are we, Danny? The momentum seems... Unstoppable. But there's a bit of a psychodrama going on between Sturgeon and Salmond, isn't there? Does that put the whole indie project at risk? Well there's a tricky question.
4: As I mean, as most people will know, Salmond and Sturgeon are no longer allies. And earlier this year Salmond was on trial for alleged sexual assault. Of course he was cleared on all charges, but he now claims he was the victim of a plot to prevent him from returning to frontline politics. He's pledged revenge and a hardline faction has sort of gathered around him. And this Mm -hmm. has all come to a head at a parliamentary inquiry into how the complaints were first handled. It's also investigating what Sturgeon knew when, and there's a separate inquiry going on at the same time, investigating whether she breached the ministerial code when she held a series of meetings and phone calls with Salmond about the allegations.
3: Okay, and how's it all going? Not well so
4: far. Um, civil servants have suffered repeated memory lapses and there's been a lot of Mm -hmm. criticism of the Scottish Government for not handing over documents as requested. And you know it's not impossible Sturgeon could be forced to resign. I mean one way to look at the fault lines within the party is this. If you're for Salmond and you think he's the victim of a plot, then you're also more likely to think that independence is moving too slowly and that the mm-hmm. SNP is going too far on issues like Me Too and the trans debate. But if you're for Sturgeon, mm-hmm. you're likely to be on the opposite side on every
3: one of those issues. OK, so it's, it's politics, it's personality, it's identity, and the destiny of the country all rolled up together. <laughs> Yes.
4: And also, some of the most contentious issues, such as currency and the economy, have not been resolved. And now Johnson appears to be building up military presence in Scotland. The UK's entire submarine fleet is to be based in Fastlane, and £65 million has been spent
3: on an ammunition jetty at Loch Long. So, all of that, Danny, the military presence, the submarines, is that so that the UK government can rekindle Project Fear?
4: Yes, well let's just point out that earlier this month The Economist ran the headline How Scottish Independence Would Threaten Britain's Defence so that certainly suggests they're ramping up the
1: fear factor again. This is just not the time. I mean, if we are talking sensibly, we need time for recovery and we have to work in partnership to do that. This is, this is just incredible times. It's, 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 it's almost unbelievable what has happened to us in the past four years since Brexit and then this year with the pandemic. It's just, it's, I I sometimes still can't believe that this is all happening.
4: Sally believes another independence referendum at a time when the country is in economic
1: freefall would be an act of madness. This is not the time to be playing party politics. This is not the time to be thinking about, oh, how can I cause more chaos with a, an independence referendum within a year of the Holyrood elections? It's, that's, that's crazy to me it's utterly crazy we need to be responsible we need to focus on recovery i run i run a business this has not been an easy year so to me an independence referendum are you joking we we need to focus on recovery that's what we need and it can't just be for 6 months it needs to be for years because that's how long it's going to take to sort this out we are on a really really shaky foundation at the moment and I just I've said it but I can't bear to think about it I can't bear to think about the fact that time and energy of people who have power will be focused on an independence referendum when what they should be using that power that knowledge that experience is on making our country better for everyone that's what they should be doing
4: But for others, the pandemic has shown how urgently Scotland needs to take control of her own destiny, and they're looking to the SNP to sort it out. With no effective opposition, it seems as if the SNP is heading for a big win in May. And of course, there's another ingredient in the mix now. Yes! One big yes! It's a happy ending for Scotland for a change! Scotland's men's team have qualified for the Euro as their first international football tournament in 22 years. Can you imagine the surge of national pride that will accompany the opening matches just a few weeks after that Holyrood election?
3: The heat will be on Boris Johnson. So what happens if the SNP gets a massive majority but Johnson just says no and refuses a second referendum? What happens then?
4: Well, some hardliners are arguing for a plan B, which effectively means that a referendum held without the consent of Westminster. And remember, this is what happened in Spain when Catalonia held its unofficial referendum. Mm. So some people, as a result of that, are afraid there'll be violence. But they also believe that for Scotland's independence to mean anything, it really has to be internationally recognised.
7: I think if you look at what happened in Catalonia, I think with the current UK government, if we done it, they would just say it's illegal and just dismiss it. They would probably just laugh at it, to be honest. Um, they don't have much regard for Scottish people anyway, so I think holding an illegal referendum just plays into their hands. I think it needs to be done a legal route and something that's going to be binding. Um, I think as well we've seen with referendums, they're very toxic and they can cause so much disruption um, that it needs a careful plan before we do it.
4: What more should the SNP be doing to put pressure on Johnson if he denies the Section Thirty when there is a mandate?
7: I think that what they really need to do now is have a strong, credible, credible economic plan that they can argue against. Um, and I think if they had plans on currency and all the kind of unanswered questions that we still don't have answers to, I think they need to have a proper plan on that and build support behind that and if it's a credible plan and he still says no that puts more pressure on him because if it's something that's going to work and it shows that it's going to be better for the people of Scotland the people of Scotland won't take it and I think the world would be watching.
2: Nicola can see the bigger picture you know it's not just about getting a referendum we need to get a referendum but then we need to win it and then we need to get independence and you know that's not going to be easy so I think Nicola's focused on other things you know before the pandemic she was spending a lot of time uh, with other countries with EU countries you know trying to build support for Scotland as an independent country so i think nicola is getting on with that and yes it's you know sometimes when you look on twitter and you see people having a go you know it, it, it does, it's depressing <laughs> Um, but I think it won't stop her. Um, she will keep going um, and keep doing everything she can. And one of the things that annoys me the most is when some of these people who should know better saying, uh, you know, the leadership doesn't want independence anymore. Nicola Sturgeon doesn't want independence. She's quite happy and a well-paid job. It's just utter nonsense. And people who say that don't know her. Um, you know, she spent her whole life working towards this for a reason. You know, again, it's not. She does, she's not a flag waver. Um, She really does want to make people's lives better and she thinks that independence can do that.
3: So looking back on the people that you've met, where do you think the country will be in five years' time? Independent, back in Europe, or still stuck in this really quite loveless marriage with England?
4: Well, personally, I think that if um, the polls are correct and the SNP get their majority at Holyrood in May, Um, There'll be an independence referendum within a year and let's say another couple of years to uncouple from um, the rest of the UK and maybe another three or so years to renegotiate our position in Europe. I think by 2030, we could be an independent country standing on our own feet within Europe. But that's not the only opinion. (laughs) So here's (laughs) Sally to tell you what she thinks.
1: I just don't feel like Independence is inevitable because I feel like the case for the union. I mean, it's it's 300 years of shared history. You know, there's there's more to Britain than just hating the English. You know, that's it's that's not what I feel about as as a British person. And I think it would be an incredibly sad day if we turned our back on our friends, our neighbours, our families, and the other nations in the UK. Um, I just feel like in these uncertain times we need to be coming together, not putting up more more barriers so what would be your vision for Scotland in five years' time? I would like to see us at the heart of a new way of working within the UK. And I don't know if that is a series of devolved regions, each having their own parliament. I don't know if that is a federal UK, but I would like the conversation to start now because I think it needs to start now. And I'd like us to obviously still be together as a family of nations, um, equal partners um, in this United Kingdom. Do you think we'll be independent within five years?
7: I would hope that we would be. I think with the polls are going up and I think if we had a plan from the government, an economic plan that would kind of show the people who are on the fence and it would kind of bring them over, I think we could be and I think we need to be if we want to kind of tackle the climate crisis in a way that's going to benefit working class people. But yeah, I think there needs to be more done from the leadership to make that happen and more of a grassroots movement from below as well. So do you think
4: um, independent in the next five years will we be independent? Yes.
2: I definitely think that this time we'll not be looking at a long referendum campaign. People don't want that. I think people want something to happen and happen quickly. So I I, I think there'll be a referendum within a year of the Holyrood elections, especially if we have a majority in the Parliament. And um, independence um, as quickly as possible after that. And work has already been done in some of this, so... Um, I I, I think we'll move to independence uh, as quickly as possible after that.
3: Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I think there's a really good chance that you'll enjoy all of the other journalism that we do at Tortoise. There are articles that you can read through our app and online. And because we're an open newsroom, there are a whole load of editorial meetings that you can join in on from wherever you are in the world. You can shape our journalism and the stories that we tell. So just get our app and you can get access to everything that we do. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash pod trial for a 30 day free trial. Oh, and of course, just as importantly, if you like this podcast, then do share it or give us a review. Thanks and see you next week.
5: We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry, to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts.